Hello everybody, happy dawn of the new NHL season. My name is Dan Rosell and I'm joined by John Fisher. Hello John. Hi Dan, how are you doing on this fine eve of the eve of the eve of the NHL regular season for the team that matters, right. the New Jersey Devils? Yeah, so while the NHL starts as season tomorrow, the Devils don't play, well tomorrow at the time of recording, we're recording this Tuesday night. The Devils don't play until Friday at home against the Winnipeg Jets, but before that happens, we have much to discuss. There were a couple of preseason games to play, and through those games, the coaching staff saw what they wanted to see from certain players, didn't see what they wanted from others, and eventually whittled it down after a three-hour delay to a 23-man opening night roster. So obviously that's going to be the main point of discussion. You can't have a discussion about who made the team without starting off with who didn't make the team. So of course, the final cuts were Matt Tennyson sent down via waivers to AHL, mm-hmm. and of course Ty Smith, who has devil's twitterverse ablaze with takes that he should have made the team he's better than Miller eh. carrick all this and eh. that and there's a lot of people up in arms about this because he's going to spokane and can't be called up now until um, you know next year when he has a chance if he doesn't make the team again for whatever reason at least he'll be available in the ahl but that is the situation and Again, he's not the first or last person this has happened to, the first or last prospect that has not been old enough to play in the league that they should have been playing in. But as a consequence of that, yeah, Ty Smith, after a solid preseason last year and training camp this year, he didn't make the cut again. And it highlights a key difference in the Devils going into this year as opposed to last, where the depth was much more significant. He had a lot... You know, people didn't expect him to make as strong of a push as he did last year, but there was a lot less competition. So here's the thing. What we talked about in our last episode about the four preseason games the Devils played, and we said, who disappointed? Who who did not do well in these games? And you and I both agreed, Ty Smith. Mm-hmm. He did not do well in those games. In the final two preseason games, Ty Smith got plenty of ice time. He played plenty of ice time against Boston and plenty of ice time in Columbus, which wasn't expected. Uh, Andy Greed decided to uh, well not he decided but he got permission to attend the miami university hockey hall of fame of which he is an alumnus it's the final preseason game it's not like green's gonna be out of the lineup so smith got in so he got to play that game too and truth be told even though you could argue that smith was technically better than character mueller in preseason he wasn't good and that's why I'm, i'm not surprised at the decision that he goes down to spokane Because quite frankly, if this guy wasn't a first round draft pick and wasn't somebody that people were hyping up as somebody who could make the team this year, nobody would be surprised by this. Absolutely nobody. He didn't earn a spot. And again, just because his demotion is down to the WHL, that brings up the point that he's literally not even old enough to be a fully developed prospect yet. He's got time, even though he's being sent down after what people expected would be a more promising preseason he's got time to develop. This is the same thing that happened to, I think I saw Morgan Riley had this kind of situation happen where he didn't quite make the cut at age uh, 19, didn't get to play in the NHL right away. But again, this just means that, you know, he's got plenty of time to figure out exactly what he has to do to make the team next year. And I'm sure the coaching instructions for him were much more serious this year, given that the team was dealing with additional depth and also much more scrutiny for him specifically, knowing the kind of preseasons that he had last year. I think a lot more eyes were on him. And as such, coaches were paying a little bit more attention to 
how he looked defensively, how his positioning was. And while he did light up the CHL, defensively, there are definitely improvements he can make. And Hines was not shy about talking about that this entire preseason. He mentioned it after almost every single game. Exactly. And I'll agree that he played better in the last two preseason games defensively than in the other three or four games, he uh, three games he played. The fact of the matter is, Dan, is that Ty Smith's big appeal is that he's not just a defensive player. He's supposed to be somebody who contributes to the offense, somebody to get the puck going in the right direction, somebody that you could put on your power play potentially, somebody that could make offense happen. He provided nothing on offense in any of these games. And I understand that, yeah, he sometimes had AHL forwards in front of him. And yeah, playing next to Connor Carrick isn't going to give you lots of offense. But the fact of the matter is this. He had five games. He played more minutes. Actually, no, technically he played the second most minutes at five on five with 83 total minutes. So only Severson played a little bit more than he did. So he got plenty of opportunities to show off what he could do. And what he showed is that he had trouble knowing where he needed to be on defense. He had trouble reacting to plays. And he provided no offense. So it's almost as if, again, if this guy wasn't somebody who had a good preseason last year, somebody that was the CHL defenseman of the year, somebody who has put up a ton of points in the WHL, somebody who, by all accounts, really doesn't have much left to prove in juniors. But at the same time, he still had a job. uh, uh, He still had a spot to earn and he didn't earn it. He didn't show off what he could do. Yeah, there's no question. It was. It was pretty disappointing. You hear about all the points he puts up in the CHL, and you're right. There was not much. How many times did he appear on the score sheet this preseason? Barely at all. In fact, I'm looking it up right now. I think like once or twice at most. He had two secondary assists. That's it. So that's not and he only had. And and it's even worse than that, Dan. He only had seven shooting attempts. Mm -hmm. Even Mirko Mueller had more shooting attempts than Ty Smith. Right. Mirko Mueller hit the net more often than Ty Smith, too. And Mirko Mueller is hardly the definition of an offensive defenseman. No, and he and Carrick did play better than Smith did. Like, were they great? I mean, no. No. But they were better than Smith was. They didn't make those kinds of mistakes. And that just comes with, I think, a little bit more pro experience. I think he was a little bit out of his depth in the first preseason where, you know, last year he didn't have the weight of expectation on him. This year was more... Listen, bud, if you're going to make the team, show us what you did last year. Do it again and beat out these guys who, you know, Mueller was there last year, but Carrick was not. Carrick uh, was not well, in that spot. Carrick. They re-signed him. Right, no, but know? I'm saying at the beginning of the year, you know, it was Lovejoy. And Ty Smith looks sure. better compared to Lovejoy than he would compared to, I guess, Carrick this year for preseason. I mean, it's it was irrefutable that Carrick looked better than him this preseason. Right. And, and more to the point, Dan, let's let's – Take a step back and look at the whole roster sure. here. The decision, the decision for the final cut came down between Smith and Boakvist because the Devils did not put anybody on waivers today. Or they only had Tennyson. They were their last waiver wire placement, and that made sense. Mm-hmm. Tennyson had a good preseason. They gave him all the extra games. Good for him. Was sent down, cleared because he's Matt Tennyson. No one's surprised. <laughs> but so the decision came down to, do you, would you rather have Jesper Boakvist or Ty Smith. And 10 times out of 10, based on preseason, you pick Jesper Bokefist because he actually showed what he could do. He showed he can be an asset. He showed he has skill for the future. And just as importantly, you sh- he showed that he could play with the top players as necessary. 
and people are going to rag on the selection of, you know, both Rooney and Hayden. And, you know, I can understand those reasons. But again, right. we're not in the locker room with these guys. These are guys with some pro experience, at least. But who knows what other factors went into this decision? But it was the easiest to both justify sending Smith down from a roster perspective, if they'd really do like those guys to the extent that they do. And it, it seems like they want to have them around, obviously, coupled with the play not being so good. It seems like it was a natural decision right i mean personally i would have put hayden on waivers mm -hmm. and sent him down because hayden had an awful preseason himself we can match sean Quindle on waivers well <laughs> lots of guys went on waivers the past couple of days no but given that they were traded for each other you know yeah well steve santini was also placed on waivers that was so. interesting news for sure <laughs> certainly but nevertheless the fact of the matter is that John Hayden had an awful preseason. If it were up to me, if I was Ray Shero, I would have stuck Hayden on waivers and said, look, I'm keeping best, both Fist and Smith. But it's clear that John Hines likes John Hayden. I'm not sure why. He thinks he brings value to the team. I have no idea what that is. So the decision came down to between both Fist and Smith. And if that's your decision, you take both Fist. And that's what they did. So I understand everybody's upset about this because I understand – that the best place for Smith would be the AHL. I don't think that's anybody's going to question that. It's just that the NHL and the CHL have a, had this agreement for decades that 19-year-old players are not going to be in the AHL unless they come from Europe or some other professional league. So, unfortunately for Smith, his option is Spokane. It stinks. I get it. But my message to Smith is you keep working because, quite frankly, you didn't you didn't earn your spot in New Jersey. So go back to Spokane and make us take a spot next year. Yeah, this opens up a lot of possibilities in terms of, you know, future roster planning. This kind of lends credence to the Friedman rumor about the devil still shopping around for another defenseman. If, right. You know, if Ty Smith didn't show what they thought they'd see from someone who was supposed to be a second or third pairing guy with relative ease, then they know they have to shop around. They know, you know, just mm -hmm. keeping Smith for so long after having a bad preseason, he still made it pretty far and you know, before not making the team. So they know uh, they have to get stronger there. I, I agree. They definitely do. Cause, and I'm not just saying that because I did the season preview post for the defenseman. The left side of the defense is not strong. You have Will Butcher, you have a declining Andy Green and Mirko Mueller, who honestly I think was better last season than people give him credit for. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's not going to wow you or do amazing things, He, but he's not glacially slow like Ben Lovejoy is. He can actually pass a puck once in a while. He was actually pretty good on the PK. And his pairing with Sammy Vatnin was actually close to breaking even, which was a near miracle on last season's team. Well, yeah. So, so honestly, but I agree. You do need, if you're going to contend and really beef up the roster, you do need to find an improvement over Mueller and Green. So Smith is not the immediate answer. We hope he is the answer for the future. So I agree. They have to either shop around or if you're perfectly fine looking for a quote unquote third pairing depth defenseman, end quote, then Go to the waiver wire. These guys are almost always available. And look at the guys that just got waived. Even if they clear, chances are, call up that organization and say, what do you want for them? Because chances are they probably aren't that high on them if they sent them to the AHL. It, it, were you seeing anyone whose name particularly stuck out to you in terms of that kind of option? Just from this first round of waiver cuts, obviously they'll happen more as the year goes on. But is there anyone yeah. in particular that you think they should have taken a flyer on or should have at least considered it? Well, I don't think the Devils 
should have taken a flyer on anyone from waivers, if only because their situation was that they waited to the very last minute to cut down to 23. Mm. That's the problem with waivers is that as much as everyone online, especially on Twitter, complains, oh, so-and-so is on waivers. He's too good for waivers. Somebody should totally pick him up, and then they freak out that they don't get picked up. It's like, guys, everybody has a roster limit. (laughs) If you take a guy off waivers, guess what? You have to cut somebody else. It's not that simple, and especially after a two-week two and a half week preseason, you may be going into the season with your your charges, your soldiers, so to speak. Go with the soldiers you know rather than the soldiers you may not know so well. That being said, to answer the question properly, I wouldn't have minded if they talked to Mr. Dello and Mr. Kane and the rest of the team about Daniel Sprong. Mm-hmm. My understanding is that Sprong's defense isn't that strong, but the dude scores goals. Mm-hmm. It's not common for a defenseman to score goals, Dan. At the very least, look at him. I'm not saying you should have picked him up, but look at him. And who knows? Maybe they did. Again, these coaches and GMs, yeah. I feel like people inherently understand this, but they seem to lose it in the uh, echo chamber of Twitter. But these guys have way more resources than we do sitting at home. You know, they have they have way more information. They have way more advanced, detailed viewings. They might be looking for entirely different things than fans are at home. It could be about a yes, psychological that thing, I will... too. Mm-hmm. That's the reason Absolutely. Amy Kimball does all the interviews with the draft prospects. They look for not just the talent, which obviously is, you know, very good to have. That's what helps you win, but also how well they fit in with the rest of the personalities on the team. And who knows what can contribute to that. But that is very much a big part of establishing this team chemistry. That's why they go on this trip every year to build that team chemistry. And that's why they took Smith along, in my opinion. I think they wanted him to see, you know, the. They wanted him to have that, not that he wasn't internally motivated enough to make the NHL, obviously anyone who even comes close has enough internal motivation to do so, but just to see what it would be like to hang out with these pros, to really do some bonding activities, get to know them and figure out like, man, I really need to work so that I don't miss out on this all year. Well, true. I think I'd like to think that they also took him along because, and this is just pure speculation, I base this on nothing. I wonder if there was a trade that Cheryl was trying to make work mm-hmm. to allow space to have both Smith and Bokefist on the roster. I wouldn't be so shocked if Cheryl was trying to make some sort of deal. And that's kind of why this was such a last minute announcement. It's true that because the NHL has not fined the Devils or anything that they submitted their rosters by 5 p.m. But we didn't find out. Uh, we being the larger public didn't find out about Smith until hours later. So. It could be just as simple as we we want to keep them. We're trying to make room. We couldn't make the room happen. I'm sorry, Smith. It is what it is. I mean, it could also have been like, you know, they were in transit and they didn't want to let him find out on Twitter before he knew himself. True. And, and I would hope that the organization has kept him abreast of all the news. Typically, a lot of sports organizations, I don't know how often you watch football documentaries and things like that, but whenever you they do television for, or oh, yeah, on Hard Knocks. Not just hard knocks, but other other things like that, mm-hmm. where they'll follow some guy who's a walk on or somebody who was like a seventh round pick, a low draft pick, and they talk to him. They talk to them and say, "Look, we're just going to let you know we're going to we're planning to cut you. It's not that you're a bad player. We hope it works out. We're going to send your tape to other teams. Maybe somebody will call you. Here's some here's some guys that might be interested, and and then you know leave it at that. And on the players tend to take that professionally. It's it's one of those harsher things. It's never good to let anybody go, but that's part of the job of being a professional is that you have to at least keep your people aware of what's happening. So it's not a surprise. And 
have them understand that. And for Smith, that could be the big learning experience here as well, is that he may have been given these expectations to make the team. I'd like to think he was told, we expect you to do well. He didn't. And he was given chances with Severson, chances with Carrick. Second, second pairing, third pairing, he was given these different opportunities, all these different minutes, and he just didn't show what he could do. Yeah, and he was and in that position that you're talking about, though, last year in Behind the Glass. We saw that happen with him specifically. Obviously, this wasn't someone that they were cutting from the team entirely, just, you know, sending back down. He's, he wasn't having his tape sent around to other teams, but he was in that same exact position. He was in this spot where he was so close to making the team, and it just didn't work out this time around. And you know, we've, we've talked about the reasons already, but hopefully this is something where he's going to be a much more flexible option next year, too. So maybe there'll be a little less pressure when the decision isn't between Spokane and New Jersey. Instead, it's between, you know, Binghamton, New Jersey, with the ability to come up and down. And that's another thing about this opening night roster. If you take a look at the opening night roster from last year, from two years ago, and then look at the roster as it w- appeared on the last day of the season, not just because they were well out of a playoff position, but for injuries, for call-ups, people that stuck around in an audition, it could conceivably look very different than it does now. There's no reason to set everything on fire just because uh, Rooney and Hayden both made the team. Right. And I could have told you that Rooney had an inside track. And I think I did. Mm-hmm. I think I did write that he had an inside track to make the team because his contract's one way. And yes, I understand the Devils owner is very rich, but nobody likes to spend 700 grand on a guy playing in the AHL. Right. Unless he's absolutely terrible. And Rooney, I don't think Rooney's very good. I think I have a lot more time for other guys playing center other than Rooney. But. In terms of, I need a depth guy to hang around the team and not mind not playing every night and chip in for 10 minutes and some PK time. I guess he'll do the job. Hayden, again, I don't think Hayden brings much value. But again, Hines sees this roster very differently. He wants his fourth line to just be some dudes, not get killed, chip in if they can, and rely on those three lines. The nice thing is that, compared to previous seasons, the Devils don't still don't have to do that. They do not have to play Rooney and Hayden. They could scratch them. You know, your fourth line could very well be Miles Wood, can be Pavel Zaka, and Jesper Bokvist. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a theory. I don't think that's the right theory. I think you're going to see one of those two men in the lineup on opening night. But that's the type of flexibility, and that just shows the additional forward depth that the team had that they really haven't had in the past couple of years because the team was rebuilding and because it was still a young team developmentally and because Cheryl was still trying to figure out like what pieces did I need to not make the forward group so top heavy. Yeah. And that's the thing that the depth has changed so much, but that just means there's going to be plenty of people in Binghamton as well, pushing for a spot, pushing to show that they can handle it. And my hope is that McLeod kind of parlays his uh, very, I mean, in my opinion, for him, it was a very successful preseason. I think he showed um, pretty good stuff compared to what he's shown before, and he got a call-up last year, too. So hopefully he... Yeah, but that call-up was by necessity. Yeah, it wasn't sure. because he was good. No problem. <laughs> but, you know, if, if Rooney is, as you say, and McLeod is ripping it up in Binghamton, we'll see him sooner rather than later. My main point... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Well, my main point is that, you know, these guys, McLeod, Bash, and Anderson, like, they're ready to be called up whenever, and Smith doesn't have that option. But these... I can almost guarantee that one of the people on this opening night roster will be nowhere near the team by the last game. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, you're going to see trades. You're going to see transactions. That's just the way of life. 
guys get hurt. That's another fact of life of the the NHL and any other professional sports league. So, you know, as you said earlier, don't set anything on fire because the roster is not what you thought it would be in game one. Besides, the roster for game one is likely going to be a lot better than the roster that started last season. Oh, by default, it already is, you know, like if if we're going just paper, I mean, who knows how they'll perform. But if we're just going by paper, which is all we have now, there's no question that it's better. There's no question that the Devils are among the top three most improved teams this offseason. Right. Right. So to that end, Dan, this is a nice segue for something I did on Sunday Mm -hmm. ahead of our season preview. I decided to go out and go out to the larger internet and find what other people are predicting for the New Jersey Devils. Mm-hmm. Now, the general, now this is just a sample of people. It's not every potential preview that was out there, and I wrote it on Saturday night, so there have been some previews and predictions that have come out since then. However, no matter if you read Dom Lushishin at The Athletic, whether or not you read Micah Blake McCurdy's bit at HockeyViz, whether you looked at... Uh, what Todd Cortell and James Tanner did at Hockey Buzz Hot Stove. Cordell follows the Devils for Hockey Buzz. You should be following him if you aren't. Jim Byringer at Last Word on Hockey. Uh, Pete Blackbird at CBS Sports. And uh, Ryan Lambert at Yahoo Sports. All of them agree. Like we're, we're talking about some people that are analytically minded, some people that are professional journalists, some people that are just analysts. They all agree with you, Dan, that this team is going to be improved. This team is going to be better than what it was. Mm-hmm. The variation is how much better is better and is it going to be enough? And all across the line, the big concern is obviously goaltending. Mm-hmm. I don't think any, that should be surprising to anyone. And interestingly, everybody seems to think, all these different people seem to think the Devils are going to hover around the high 80s, low 90s. And that's kind of on the bubble of making a wild card wild card spot. Mm-hmm. Um, some some people have, them, have the Devils just barely making it in and others are having the Devils just missing it by a little bit. But they all agree this team is going to be better than what it was last season. So, my question to you, Dan, should we add these people to the list of haters and losers, of which there are many, (laughs) or do they have a point? And we should, you know, we should be excited for this team, but maybe we should temper our expectations for the playoffs. I think a lot of people view what happened last year as the goaltending situation, and they don't Mm -hmm. really appreciate the context of it. I think you're right that that's people's biggest concern uh, in in terms of the Devils, but we saw what Schneider and Blackwood were doing the second half. It wasn't really talked about much because their first half, not not Blackwood because he wasn't there yet, but their first half was, Schneider's at least, was abysmal, and Kincaid's was abysmal. So that really dragged down the overall team numbers, and I think that that was a little bit fraudulent in terms of what the what the actual situation is right now the situation is that schneider is in year two of actually figuring out what was wrong with him and recovering from that injury and he's running at about the same timeline as other goalies in the league who have had the same procedure that he had on his hip so there's reason for optimism from the goaltending situation that's actually not what worries me most of all what worries me is are we going to get on the high end of some of these player projections or the lower end? Like, will Hughes right. be able to hit that 60-70 point threshold? Will Subban get back to at least 40 points, hopefully 50 to 60? Um, you know, like he's done and he hit 60 points, I think, one time in his career. But last year, obviously a down year with 31. He dealt with injuries. He's more motivated than ever. But again, it remains to be seen how that translates. I think the variance in how many balls are up in the air here. 
um, it is where people are getting skittish, but I don't think the goaltending should be emphasized as heavily as a negative as I think it has been so far. Okay, well, that's an interesting take, and I, I, I sort of agree with you on that for a different reason. I will agree that, yes, Schneider is looking much better in terms of his mobility in the net, in terms of getting into form, going post to post. Stick handling is, well, it's Schneider and stick handling. Yeah, Don't worry about it's it. It's not great. But the big thing why I'm encouraged for the goaltending is how they played in preseason. Because even though this is an indictment of the defense, Schneider got pelted in three of his three of his starts. Absolutely pelted, Dan. Loads of rubber. Right. And he let up what? Uh, not even six goals? I'm just quickly counting it right here. Uh, yeah, he let up only six goals total. That's astounding mm-hmm. over three games. And Blackwood, you know, to his credit, you know, he didn't get that big shutout against Columbus like Schneider did, who who was amazing in that game. Um, you know, he only got beaten by, what, a couple flukes and, you know, a dribbling puck against the Rangers. Like, again, he faced a lot of work and he showed up to the test. I don't disagree with other people looking at the Devils goaltending and going, oh, oh my goodness, this could be the thing that kills him. But I do agree with you, Dan, in that I think the projections have to hit the right way. This is a team that, like Carolina in past seasons, where, you know, they do a lot of things right, but they only shoot – the team shoots at like 6% at five-on-five five five right. hockey. And ergo, a team that should be and is a pain in the butt to play against and should be a playoff team is in the basement because they're just not scoring goals. Last season was the first season in a long time where they weren't shooting at one of the lowest uh, percentages in the league. So it's on the Devils. In, in a way, this is not something they can fully control. Puck luck is a thing in hockey. Uh, this is a sport where weird things just happen, and over time, they can help and hurt and hinder you. So I do agree that maybe the projections. The other thing that I'm concerned about, Dan, is – the reason why the team from 2017-18 made the playoffs is because they grinded out a lot of games. They took a lot of games to overtime. And even if this meant blowing some leads, they still played beyond 60 minutes, which gets you a point in the standings, which is a lot better than the zeros that you would collect from a regulation loss, which the Devils had a lot of last season. Mm-hmm. And that's actually part of where, what Corey Mastisak initially identified as a big problem with last season's team is that – even in November, as early as November, the team was just getting destroyed. They weren't hanging with the teams to like grind out points when things were struggling. That, okay, we were winless in our last three games, but we got two points out of it or three points out of it. So we're still in the mix in, the, in terms of the playoff run. Right. The big thing is that if for a team potentially on the bubble like the Devils, they need to get back to where they were two seasons ago in terms of having the instincts, having the mindset, having the never-say-die attitude on every game they could possibly get to. And yes, they do need to win some of those games beyond regulation. They got to win some overtimes. I don't know how, but they got to win some shootouts as well. Get those extra bonus points, so to speak. But that's the thing. Don't take zeros. Get ones. And if you can, get twos. And if you keep building all those up, you're going to be in a much better position in March that you're actually going to be playing for something as opposed to going, well, I guess we're in the lottery again. Let's hope the 14th... uh, you know, overall pick suddenly becomes the third or second this year. And you don't want to have to rely on that year after year, you know? No, absolutely I, not. Ideally, you'd think they built up a war chest at this point with prospects that um, can viably 
make it to the next level. Maybe not right away, maybe not even in two years, but down the line, they they have enough players that show some promise. So at this point, when they are going for it, when they're trying to build a team, they have you know, a, a window of opportunity here. I don't know if it's not necessarily a contending window just yet, but it is starting to open in the sense that they do have a nice mix of older and younger talent. And when I say talent, right. like actual talent, and it, it, they have to capitalize on it now. And you don't do that by anticipating winning the draft lottery. Ideally, you don't want to be in the draft lottery. So they, they have to... You're right. There's a lot of tenacity that they were missing last year, but a lot of that had to do with them maybe experiencing the worst injury luck of all time. The locker room significantly changes with every person you take out of it. So that could have definitely affected their mental. Losing that many games in a row. I mean, scoring three goals against yourself in one game, that's going to demoralize anyone for not just the next game, but maybe a few others after. They're professionals. They do this all the time. They know how to bounce back from losses. But, you know, there's also human. There's a human element to it that... It's not as easy to do in the grind of a long season when you're traveling, you're away from your family for long periods of time. If things aren't going well on the ice, it gets even tougher for everyone involved. So this was a nice opportunity to reset. There's a lot of new blood in the locker room, a lot of fresh faces. There's a lot of people that are very highly motivated. So I think in terms of comparing to projections like we were leading off with, I think what a lot of people think are negatives about the Devils are more in the X factor range of they could be negative, but there's also a chance it's very boomer bust potential. I'd say, well, I'm hoping it's not as contentious as that because teams that are boomer bust tend to bust. Well, I don't know. It's weird because it's, it's so hard to tell anything. I mean, last year going into the two years ago, going into the season who had the devils in the playoffs last year, who had the Islanders, you know, there's always a team like that. You don't want to be a team that, I feel like it's good to be a team that surprises people maybe one year, but most of the time you want to be viewed as a consistent contender. And the way they've built this iteration of the roster has me much more assured of that than it did going into last year. Last year, I felt pretty positive, but that was only based on the success of the year before. And obviously Taylor Hall having an MVP season, he gets hurt and the season ends. That's not a sustainable team. No, it isn't. But at the same time, Dan, you know, that team was falling into dead last last season with Hall before the injury. Oh, yeah. But the fact of the matter is, long-term, you're right. Hall Ratio has built up the roster to be much deeper in, from a development point of view, deeper in terms of a talent point of view. But at the same time, you eventually have to take a step forward. Mm-hmm. And this is the season to do so. Because it, let's say the Devils fall flat on their face again. I don't think Tyne survives it. I don't think the coaching staff survives it. And if I'm the ownership, I got to go to Cheryl and go, look, I liked a lot of what you've done here, but, you know, you, you've had five seasons of this. You made the playoffs once. We, we you know, had all this talent. And what happened? What, what went wrong here? So in a way, there's some pressure, I think, on management and coaching to basically justify the moves that have been made. And that means get results. Mm-hmm. But that's 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 welcome to life. I mean, you know, you make all these moves in your personal life. Well, it's got to show some results. Otherwise, people will just go, well, why did you do this then? Yeah. <laughs> you know, same with anything else. No, exactly. So, and, and just to, you know, to to put a bow on it, you know, well, this is just general um, discussion. We'll go into a more in-depth preview position by position um, after a short break. But just to just to wrap things up, it's. 
you can view projections. Obviously, it's a fun exercise every time. And the gamut that's run with these things goes from devils getting like 98 to 100 points to like 80, according to USA Today, who has pretty consistently just crapped on them for years now. And I don't know. I'm. It could. It's so strange. There's so many different factors that could happen, but there's also so many unknowns that it's, that projections can't really account for. They don't have a sample size of these things. They don't have a sample size of Jack Hughes' NHL stats. They don't have Nikita Gusev's NHL stats. It's all to be seen. So take them with a grain of salt. Obviously, it feels better when people say nice things about your team, but again, nothing really matters until they start playing the games. Right. All right, and with that, we'll take a short break to hear from a sponsor, too, and then we'll get back to the Devils season preview now that we have the full roster. Let's break it down position by position. What do you say? Sure. All right, sounds good to me. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. And now that we know the opening day roster for the New Jersey Devils, let's break it down from the goalies moving up the ice, position by position, the squad the opening night squad for the new jersey devils what do we think it'll look like how do we think people will mesh how do we think people perform lots of questions to be answered so starting with the goalies i feel like we've already kind of talked about them now yep it was never in doubt that it was going to be schneider and blackwood and it's schneider and blackwood yeah and this was it was interesting because for a goalie tandem that was universally panned by the aforementioned projections and any sort of people and most devils fans and most devils <laughs> I mean, fans but you know who didn't watch second half of the season because why would you um but <laughs> it, it's it was weird that going into this summer that seemed like the only position that was completely locked down and there was really no controversy surrounding it camp didn't really change anything We're rolling with blackwood and schneider we feel good about it yep they played very well in preseason they've earned the right and now we just have to hope that the form from preseason carries over into the game's account. Mm-hmm. And there's two young goalies in Binghamton now just going through the organizational depth. But it's I'm wondering if they won't try to get like an Eddie Lack type guy just so it's not two really young guys in Binghamton. Just in case well, they, they need did. someone. Did they? They kind of did. They got Well, he's not on an NHL contract. Uh, it's Eamon McAdam. Oh, he's okay, an okay. AHL veteran goaltender. So it's not like Eddie Lack in the sense of he's a guy you could call up, but... He's somebody that could help stabilize the tandem, so to speak, in the AHL and maybe push somebody to the ECHL as needed. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm still wondering if they make that veteran move. I don't know that they necessarily need to. I think they feel pretty good about the goalies, but you never know what could happen to the goalies up in Jersey as well. So we'll, that remains to be seen. But for now, the situation's pretty stable. We all knew it was coming. And um, yeah, rolling with Blackwood, rolling with Schneider. Schneider's probably going to start opening day because he hadn't fantastic preseason and yeah that's i mean there's really not much more to say this was something that was set in stone from basically january of last year right so let's move on to the defenseman perfect so our defenseman this year who are the lucky participants well the defensemen are the following seven players will butcher connor carrick andy green Mirko Mueller, damon severson pk suban and sammy vatnan now dan I did the preview for the defenseman this year on All About the Jersey. We're doing our week-long season preview where every day we focus on a particular position. I'm very excited about the addition of P.K. Subban. And one of the reasons why, and maybe the biggest reason why, is the fact that despite the bad season he had last season, despite all that, 
P.K. Subban, based on the all three zone data that Corey Schneider, uh, Schneider uh, collects, and C.J. once made a tableau for it, shows that over the last three seasons, which is not in Subban's prime, by the way, because he's now 30, he was still one of the very best defensemen in the league in terms of creating shot assists, getting zone exit with possession, breaking up zone entries, uh, allowing possession entries from the opposition, and a percentage of entries uh, with possession allowed. The fact of the matter is that this is a guy who's very good in transition, so good at moving the puck forward, and he has an offensive component that very few defensemen in the league really have. This alone is something the Devils have not had enough of in past seasons. Now, thanks to Subban, you have Subban. You have Vatnin. You have Severson, and you have Will Butcher as all got four guys who can transition the puck well, contribute to the offense, and do a pretty good job at breaking up entries. Like, for all the talk that Butcher and Severson get for not being good defensively, breaking up zone entries is a really important part of the defense, uh, especially in transition. So the Devils have definitely moved to a much more dynamic and mobile blue line. The big concerns, as we have discussed, is you, your left side is still much weaker than your right side. Mirko Mueller, you know, wasn't that bad statistically last season. He has, he had, his pairing with that, and it was decent. But he's not he's not much more than depth. Like, you're not going to have him play your, on your first pairing. And Andy Green, and don't get me wrong, years ago, Andy Green was the bomb. Yes, that makes me sound really old to call Andy Green the bomb, but he was the bomb. But now... He has been bombing. It, the bomb has exploded years ago, Dan. It, it's defunct. Maybe that's more appropriate. The point is, he has declined as a player to the point where he should not be a first-pairing defenseman. He should not be taking the most minutes on the team. He should not be facing the other team's best. And he's in the final year of his contract, so I question if we're even going to see him next season. He'll definitely be in the lineup because he's the captain, and you don't bench your captain unless you have a very big problem in the back. But those are the two biggest concerns on the defense. And, I, I, and I'm sorry, but Ty Smith hasn't shown enough this year to crack that lineup. Carrick is your spare defenseman on the right side. So unless Sammy Vatnin's willing to play offhand, which he might, it's going to be a somewhat imbalanced crew with depth concerns because Carrick is, has not shown to be all that in a bag of chips. And if you go to Binghampton, uh, Matt Tennyson, he's just a guy – Josh Jacobs is just a guy. Colton White is just a guy. There's not a lot of guys to be excited about at the defenseman position. So that being said, with the addition of Subban, joining a right side with Vatnin and Severson, Will Butcher has proven to be very good. This defense should be better than last season, and if nothing else, should be a lot more dynamic. Yeah, health is paramount for this defensive group, especially with Ty Smith back in Spokane. This is... It's so important for Subban and Butcher to probably play over, I don't know, 65 games each. Yeah, I think that's about right. I think that's a reasonable range where, you know, they could the team would still benefit from, you know, obviously they benefit from their presence there, but is it going to hamper them if they're not there that badly? I'd say yes with those two guys in particular. Severson to an extent as well. Vatten and you know these are all guys that there's not too much as you said going on in Binghamton to replace these guys as level. The Binghamton guys, you know, they'll get their opportunities. Hopefully they'll improve this year as well. But they're not of the same caliber as really any of these guys that made the roster. 
No, they're not. And not even at Carrick's level. I mean, Carrick is kind of like your replacement level defenseman, for lack of a better term. So I think if you're concerned about injuries, absolutely defense is a big one. And also just in general, poor play. Like we talk about depth in terms of injuries, but let's say Mueller's having a bad run of games. Like there's not really an option in with the B Devils to say, okay, we're going to slot this guy in, Mueller, take a couple nights off in the scratch suite, and we'll figure it out, and maybe that'll stop the bleeding, so to speak. You don't really have that option available. So depth is a concern in that regard. And again, it's going to be coming down to what do you do with the left side? I've been, in my post, I wrote that I would like to see Butcher and Subban as a first pairing. Subban can be your big minute guy because he's a big minute guy. And Butcher is a lot better than people give him credit for. But it looks like based on practice, today's practice, it's going to be Green and Subban. And that makes me sad because Green is not going to be able to keep up with Subban. Simple <laughs> ass. Um, well, yeah. And again, like this is – it's one of those things where now we've heard rumors that the Devils are shopping around for a defenseman, which – you can kind of view it two ways. You can view it in the sense that, oh, look, they're still active on the trade market. They know that defensive depth is an issue. Or you can view it as that's definitely not changing anytime soon because, again, when have you ever heard news about a devil's trade besides, like, minutes before it happens? Exactly. And just look at, say, two seasons ago when the Devils got Vatnin. That trade was made in the middle of November. And it's not that trades don't happen before the trade deadline, Dan. But they typically don't happen early in the season. And it, and if they do happen, they're not necessarily major trades. That was a fairly rare case of here's a legitimate player, traded for a legitimate player. It was a very even trade. And both sides, I think, got something out of it. Both I mean, sides that's made the still... playoffs because of that trade. Yeah, in part of that. So is it possible? Absolutely. But as you said, Ray Sherrod does not make moves just because they're being rumored or discussed about in public. He makes moves when he wants to make the moves. So to your point, maybe there is no move about to happen because people are talking too much. Yeah, no, exactly. And it just feels more suspicious given that anything major that's happening or that has happened to the Devils in the last couple of years from a trade perspective, there was not a whisper of it before it happened. So take it with a grain of salt, but just understand that they probably see that there's this left-sided deficiency on the defensive side, but who knows? Uh, again, like this is this is something that maybe they'll be better than expected. Maybe I'm trying to be as optimistic as I can about the the bottom two, but I'm not finding it very no. easy. <laughs> no, greed has declined badly. I think people do not understand that this. And again, I have all the numbers in the post, but last season, Mueller was not statistically one of the worst defensemen on the team, but Green absolutely was. Mm -hmm. and, he, and even though Severson was ranked just as low as him, there's a big gap between Severson and Green. By the way, guess who? Guess which two defensemen played together a lot last season for 82 games? Was it maybe uh, Green and Severson? Those two, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and when one guy is that much worse than the other, you could probably figure out who had the bigger problems. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. And hopefully... Again, hopefully all the health holds. Hopefully they're able to kind of push the pace a little bit. I think a lot of the Devils' biggest issue on offense was that they didn't have those defensive play drivers. They they got Subban for this exact reason. He is one of the best at driving the play. Whether or not he's putting up the points or not, he still drives play yep. very well. Yep, his breakouts are great. And 
do we want to parlay this into special teams or do we want to save that for a little bit later? Yeah, we can do that a little bit later just because okay. I figured we'd go I'll by hold position off. I'll, first. Yeah, okay. Well, then let's move on to the forwards mm-hmm. and uh, we can continue on from there. The f- because the forwards should definitely receive a lot more passes in the breakout from Mr. Subban than, say, from Green. Mm-hmm. This is one of the deepest Devils forward groups that we've seen, at least on paper, in a pretty long time, I'd say. You have Definitely. you have a range of you know young talent. You have the youngest player in the NHL. That's the Devils boasting that mark for the second time in three years, and he's going to make his debut. And then you have all reliable third line center Travis Zajac. You know you have this whole mix of people in there, and obviously the biggest pivot point here is a healthy Taylor Hall. There's no. Yes understating how important he is to this franchise it was abundantly clear last year it was so obvious when he was gone it was a completely different team that played a completely different style hopefully you know whatever was going on with his knee i'm i won't you know lie to you and say i'm not worried about it but he seems to feel a lot better and that's i guess all i can hang my hat on now but it is so important for him to be a conduit, but at least he doesn't have to do it himself anymore. They added so much pedigree, and like I said before, we have yet to see the results for a Gusev or a Hughes or even a Boquist for making the roster, but the forwards played their way on there, maybe minus the fourth line. But all the other guys, they had, you know, they, they made their cases, they staked their claims on their spots. It wasn't really in danger for a lot of them, but they still had to perform, and the guys that we were hoping to see a lot from, we did. So it's a good sign so far. Can they stay healthy, especially Taylor Hall? And, I mean, the, the staying healthy is a question for every team, but especially for the Devils who relied so much on Hall, will they as much this year when they have other puck distributors, when they have other guys who can shoot as well? What is it going to look like, really? Well, the nice thing about the devil's forwards group is that the coaching staff now has lots of options. Mm -hmm. So for example, and they tried this out in preseason too, because one of the bigger questions is going to be, well, who should Nico, he should be centering and who should be Jack Hughes be centering and who should Travis Zajac be centering and who should Pavel Zaka be centering. And the thing is, is that you have a lot of different options for a lot of different identities for these different lines. You could go back to the old faithful of Hall, Heesher and Palmieri, or Hall, Heesher, Brat, or if you want to get really spicy, you can get Hall, Heischer, and Simmons if you feel like you need to cycle a lot more and you need a big man who's going to bust some heads and make plays down low. And they you even throw Boquist in there in practice sometimes. Yeah, you could try Boquist um, for a couple shifts if you want additional speed, uh, not a change of pace guy, so to speak. Likewise, you know, maybe you take out Hall and say, okay, we're going to put Nikita Gusev in that spot and Hall can run with Jack Hughes, who that part of preseason was amazing uh and then you get to guys who could fill in more for lack of a better word checking roles or guys who can be more defensively responsible or play uh, a more aggressive grittier type of game with coleman with wood i can't believe i'm saying this with hayden and rooney uh-huh, uh-huh, <laughs> but, uh-huh. <laughs> but the point is is that you have a lot of different options to plug and play here and I wouldn't worry so much if, if a line changes night after night because you the devil should absolutely be considering that. They should they should understand like who works well with who, 
understand who your potential matchup is going to be and make adjustments accordingly. So this way at home, Jack Hughes gets good, good matchups. And this way on the road, he doesn't get killed out there um, until he shows that he's amazing and he doesn't have to. But the fact of the matter is the Devils can run three very good lines and potentially two thirds of a fourth line. Like you could have skill and usefulness up and down the forward group. And if they, if somebody does get hurt, there are some capable guys in Bing, Binghamton that can definitely step in to at least take a bottom six role, like a McLeod, like a Cini, like an Anderson, like a Bastion and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So forwards get hyped, get excited. I do agree. There's going to be some big questions about how much they can achieve I'm sure, you know, Gusev is technically a question mark. Is Hall 100%? What's Jack Hughes going to do in his rookie year? What's Bokvist going to do in his rookie year? Is Jesper Brock going to break out? Is Nico Heischer going to break out? There's a lot of questions, but these are all good questions. It's not, okay, can this guy pretend to be a second-line left winger for four months of the season? Like, nobody is banking on something like that here. Should one guy goes down that isn't named Taylor Hall or Nico Heischer and – I'll, I'll even include Jack Hughes on this. You have a guy that could step up and, for the short term, fill in. Yeah, there's, this offense is riddled with X-factors, but they're X-factors that we have no reason to believe right now will lean in a negative direction. Correct. And the skill set that we have seen in preseason from a Gusev, from a Hughes, from a Bookfist, and even the more established players like Heischer, Brad, Hall, Palmieri, is that they got talent. Like, it's not going to be a case of these guys can't shoot the puck. These guys can't pass. These guys can't handle defensive defensive issues from the opposition, or they can't handle zone entries. These guys can absolutely do all those things. It's going to be more of a question of putting the puzzle pieces together as opposed to wondering whether or not you have the right puzzle at all. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing. That's something that the Devils haven't had the luxury of having in years, but it came because, you know, some draft lottery luck. But again, the, the Jaspers are homegrown there's plenty of talent that the devils have developed in the last couple of years that is just now starting to hit the main club so we're seeing the fruits of shiro's labors not definitely not the first time just because the team has looked significantly different for a while from when he took over but we're definitely seeing more of that being shown in who's making the roster who is making pushes out of training camp and again like the general age of the team right now it's it skews younger Absolutely. And that benefits to the Devils because in a couple of years, some of these guys will be hitting their prime. And that's when the quote unquote window of opportunity should be wide open. When Nico Heischer turns 23, 24, that's when you want to you, you better be a contender by that point because you're going to get Heischer at his best. Mm-hmm. At that point, Hughes will be 21, 22. That's when you want to be competing for championships. You know, Hall will still be viable. Palmieri will still be viable for a couple of years. A uh, couple of these guys won't make it that long for three or four years. Some guys are just fill-ins like Simmons is on one-year contract. I have no idea about Wood's future in the long term. But we're not talking about the long term here. We're talking about the short term. Mm-hmm. And the short term is that we can see a lot of blossoming and a lot of good things happen. And it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. Oh, one other thing. Mm-hmm. Would you like to hear an update on Hall's situation? I sure would, as would everyone else. Okay. So Neil McHale, who is a writer at the fourth period, just tweeted out, earlier this evening that he was listening to a TSN 1050 radio hit that Mr. Bob McKenzie appeared on. And we all respect Bob McKenzie. He's an, he's an insider. He's a man of substance. When Bob McKenzie speaks, we listen. I would hope so. 
you should. He has stated that Hall has apparently given his agent, Darren Ferris, the, quote, green light, end quote, to talk contract extension with Ray Shero. And McKenzie also reiterated that Hall is very happy with the Devils' moves this summer. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying, you know, when the puck drops, you're going to see a contract get announced. But I wouldn't be surprised if sooner rather than later we get some conclusion on Hall's extension and the fact that there will be likely an extension. Yeah, seeing that tweet was, you know that meme where you just see Kermit holding a phone and then he just hugs it when you see the tweet? That was me. (laughs) That was me for sure seeing that kind of uh, discussion about Taylor Hall giving some sort of green light. And again, this is the kind of thing where I have to temper my enthusiasm a little bit just based on what we talked about with how close to the vest the devils keep everything but i'd again rather hear that than he hasn't given him the green light you know what i mean absolutely so hopefully that gets resolved sooner rather than later i don't think it would be a distraction because i don't think that's the kind of guy that hall is but getting it done would be a lot off of the management's mind. It would be a lot off the coach's mind yeah. to, you know, not have to deal with that. I think it will just take up a lot of pressure off the fans. I, 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 I'm I, a big believer that a lot of these players are professional. Mm-hmm. Hall's not the first player that's on an expiring contract that they've ever encountered. I don't think it's that big of a distraction to the team or the coaching staff in terms of, you know, whether or not he is or isn't signed. Unless Hall is in the back saying, you know, don't play me on the – don't play me here, don't play me there, or I won't side. Mm-hmm. Uh, provided that he's not doing anything like that, it's whatever. You know, it let, let the GM worry about it. And truth be told, it's October 1st, 2019. There's a lot of time for moves to be made. Mm-hmm. So that being said, if they can get something done earlier, as you said, yes, it would take a lot of potential weight off their shoulders. And more importantly, we could just focus more on Hall doing amazing things on the ice with either Nico or uh, Jack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Which brings me to... Go ahead. Power play. Power play. So I'm going to quote Corey Masiak quoting John Hines to open this. Quote John Hines. If you look at Hall's unit, you have Paul Mary and Hall who have been very productive in those spots. Now you add Wayne Simmons and PK to that, and that's a man's power play. Now, presumably, Travis Ajak would still be the center of that power play since he's been constantly with Hall, you know, winning faceoffs, sitting in the bumper, so to speak, of the 1-3-1. But I do agree with Hines. That's a serious power play on paper because Simmons is a monster down low and around the crease on a power play. It's his bread and butter. You have a set play in Palmieri. Hall can distribute from the half boards. And if it's not working with Hall, P.K. Subban is a fantastic distributor and shooter from distance. That power play unit should do amazing things, Dan. Mm -hmm. They looked great in preseason. Yes. And what's more astounding, and this goes back to the depth of the forwards, the second unit, the second unit. Look at all the potential options you have for that second unit, right. Dan. A guy like Pavel Zaka, who actually has power play abilities, may not make that second unit because that second unit could feature Nico Heischer, Jack Hughes, Jesper Bokfist, potentially one of Will Butcher or Damon Severson from the back. If you if you want to go spicy with a big slap shot, you can get Sammy Vatten back there. And Make your choice for the other forward. Whether you want to go down low, you can get a, someone like Wood, who, okay, he's not very good at it, you, but you can have him down low there. Or if you want somebody who's really going to fight for the puck and probably do a little bit better than Wood in that regard, Blake Coleman, if, you've, if you're feeling fancy, if your name is CJ Turturro and you want 
Blake Coleman on the ice as much as possible. Mm-hmm. But I but I kid there. The, the fact of the matter is that the Devils have plenty of options for both of these units as opposed to previous seasons where unit one would be the main unit and then the second unit would be just a bunch of Joes, you know, who, who who's available, who's fresh. Just throw five guys out there and hope it works. Yeah. No, exactly. And this team much better. This is a thing where, wanted... again, the depth that they have here means that they'll be much more prepared to deal with injuries or any sort of other unforeseen circumstances than they were last year. This is something where all of a sudden their options are just so much wider. They have so many more people that can push for a power play opportunity. And again, if someone's not working out, they can slot some other people in there. Maybe maybe not Coleman because he's going to be exhausted from uh, playing penalty kill because they take like 15 penalties a game, but still. But you're absolutely right. And if they want to go something different instead of just a 1-3-1, they have the defensemen to go with two defensemen in the back for that. Like Severson and Butcher, they're power play quality players. Mm-hmm. Those are guys that you would want out there. So if they want to go fancy in that regard, go to a more traditional power play setup instead of the one three one, they could. Typically, teams don't like to do that because if a guy gets hurt on the first unit, you move somebody up from the second unit. Or if somebody is unavailable on the first unit, you move someone up. And you don't want to have them try to remember, okay, we're in this system, so I have to remember to do these different things. Nevertheless, the fact of the matter is that this should be much better and at the very least much more exciting to watch than what it was last season and even in previous seasons because – well, I'll hold off on, on the one thought I was about to say t- towards the end as sort of a concluding point. Mm-hmm. Sure, no problem. But let's, but let's move on to the other special team, as you mentioned, penalty killing. Mm-hmm. So, for the penalty kill, there's a couple losses here. Ben Lovejoy's no longer with the team, mm-hmm. and he played almost, not as much as Andy Green, but more than the majority of the NHL did on the penalty kill last season. And at forward... You don't have Josh Anderson available, but you do have Blake Coleman. You've got Travis Zajac. Joe Kevin Anderson, Rooney's on the roster. Joe Anderson. I said Josh. <laughs> Josh Anderson. Anderson. He plays on Columbus. I always screw this up. I get the wrong Anderson. <laughs> I had no problems when it was Matt Anderson, you know, AHL veteran from a couple of years ago. <laughs> no issues with Matt Anderson. But throw me a J, and it's like I just can't differentiate the two. The sad thing is that Josh Anderson in Columbus is, like, really good, and Joey is still – in potential mode, nevertheless. But Pavel Zaka was a great penalty killer last season. So forward, I'm not concerned about, unless they're going to throw John Hayden out there, who I'm not convinced knows the system. Right. He he definitely didn't demonstrate it in preseason, because part of the system that the Devils run is a wedge plus one, where the plus one is supposed to engage the point or the wing, uh, the puck carrier, to make to force him to make a play. And the Devils rotate that plus one with the forward. So they sort of go in and out. You know, one goes back into the wedge and the other goes forward and vice versa. Well, with Kevin Rooney, Kevin Rooney would go out and John Hayden would stand back like he should. And then Rooney comes back and Hayden just still stays in the same spot. <laughs> it's like, dude, you're the plus one. Okay. To go. But well, it's safe to say that he probably won't see much time on the penalty kill. I hope not. <laughs> I really hope not because the Devils have better players. And if yeah, if we could clone Col- uh, Coleman three times, then that would be a great unit. Or or Zaka. Or Zaka, Zaka yeah. Fantastic at it. And and what's amazing is that Kyle Palmieri is not that shabby on the penalty kill. And more importantly, they haven't tried Nico Heischer on the penalty kill, and I think he would be a fantastic penalty killer. Mm-hmm. I mean, that goes with got- like Zajac too. His faceoff prowess helps well, him a ton on the penalty kill. 
Absolutely. Winning a draw to start that penalty kill helps you get a clear, and that can take 13, 14, 15 seconds right off the clock right away. And I found that out. I actually did the work. It, it, that's about how much time it would take off with a full length of the ice clear after a face-off. So there's value to that. So you're going to see a lot of Zajac and Coleman again. You're like, I hope you're going to see plenty of Zaka and maybe Rooney or Heischer or Palmieri or whoever's available. But forward is not the concern on the penalty kill. Defense is a bit of a concern. Andy Green's coming back. He was very good, if only because he played a ton on the penalty kill. He played more than anyone else shorthanded last season. Mm-hmm. But he's also 37. He's not getting any younger. It's, you know, one has to wonder how long can he keep it up for the amount of work he does on the penalty kill. Marco Mueller wasn't that shabby at it. So I imagine we're going to see him on the penalty kill. But. The Devils are going to have to take some chances on defense because as much as P.K. Subban is great in five-on-five and power play situations, he was not a good penalty killer for Nashville last season. He he was one of their worst penalty killers. Mm-hmm. So I would not want P.K. on the P.K. Sorry, P.K. <laughs> uh, even though they tried it in preseason, unless the system is that much different in uh, New Jersey. And I don't think it is because Nashville's penalty kill last season was actually pretty good or rather very good, I should say. Uh, I don't want PK on the PK, but that means you're going to have to take a chance on a butcher, take a chance on Vatnin. They kind of sort of tried with Vatnin. It wasn't too terrible, but it wasn't astounding. And if you really want to try, go outside the, you know, outside the board, so to speak, Severson. Uh, those names are not going to inspire a lot of confidence for some fans, but that, you know, without Lovejoy taking so many minutes, you're going to have to try somebody out to hang out with Green. That being said, it is a penalty kill situation, so as long as you're able to win pucks, hold your position, and get those pucks out of the zone, you don't have to be amazing. You just have to be functional. So I expect the penalty kill to still be a pretty good penalty kill, but defense is a little weaker than what it was last year. Mm-hmm. And that's that's okay just considering the caliber of forward they have penalty killing too. Yeah, and also keep in mind the Devils had the fourth best penalty killing rate last season. They, had, you know, Zaka was legitimately an amazing elite penalty killer by very many metrics. The Devils across the board at forward and defense were above the upper half of the league, so they had one of the best penalty kills last season, and they finished 29th. So it's not as if having an amazing penalty kill is going to be that critical in terms of making the playoffs or not. But if they take only a couple steps back instead of just falling into the bottom half of the league, that's okay. With how much they were penalized, if their penalty kill wasn't top five, they would have been 31st by a mile. That's true. <laughs> and that's that's actually a larger concern with the team, is discipline. Mm-hmm. Severson takes a lot of penalties. Wood takes a lot of penalties. Simmons and Subban are not unfamiliar with the concept of penalties. Right. Guys like Hayden are, you know, since they want to go out and be tough, he's likely a penalty risk as well. I'm also concerned about, for example, a guy like... Uh, Gusev, who's brand new to the NHL, you know, he wasn't penalized a lot in preseason, but I could foresee him just, you know, taking some fouls because he got beat and he doesn't want to get beat. So he hooks or trips a guy uh, just getting acclimated to the North American game more. He he could be likely a penalty uh, risk as well. The Devils could be one of the most penalized teams again this season, and that would be a detriment to the overall plan. So, But the bigger concern, the biggest concerns in that regard is Wood and Severson by a country line. Mm-hmm. So both of those guys have to be much better at it, but given that they have been <laughs> highly penalized for several seasons in a row now, I'm not holding my breath. Yeah, that's, that's the thing that is my greatest concern, too. There's nothing like 
there's nothing that kills momentum harder than taking well like six penalties in a row like even if you kill all of them off your guys are exhausted now there were moments last year where the devils would be maybe maintaining a lead or at least the game state would be you know tied or pretty even and then they'd start cascading these penalties it's like kill one off another one happens in 30 seconds after that it's it's just over and over and over again the guys get worn out they easily had games where they took six or seven penalties that was like a regularity for them so that's something that they really have to clean up and it does help to have a speedier roster to clean that up because they don't rely so much on impeding the progress of the other player but as you said there's still some players that have those tendencies and maybe they emphasize that this offseason but ideally they'll just put themselves in a position not to have to take those penalties Right. And keep in mind, some of these penalties are what I'm going to call fluke plays. For example, in the last preseason game against Columbus, where they took three penalties in a row mm-hmm. and had two 40 to 50 second overlapping five on three situations, which is exactly a, a, the type of thing you're talking about. The big concern is that you're not just killing one penalty, you're killing six straight minutes of it with a, a near two minute period of being down two men. And two of those were delay of games, like pucks cleared over the glass, one of which Jesper Brett threw at over the glass from his end of the rink over the other end of the rink. Like, that's a really hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. And the one in the middle was Mr. Hayden deciding that I'm on a four check. I'm going to just hook and grab Zach Rowenski at his own blue line, which, you know, that's something simple. You just tell John, you're killing a penalty, son. Don't be so aggressive. If you don't have it, just go back. Yeah, that's it. And but, like, it, it's really a matter of. There are sometimes good penalties to take. I feel like a lot of the ones oh, that yeah, Severson takes fall into um, maybe not the majority of the ones he takes because it's impossible to be that way. But a lot of the ones that he takes are in that category of this is a guy on a breakaway. You know, he's going to hook him. This is someone that is standing in front of the net all alone. He's going to get knocked down and interfered with. That's the kind of thing that would classify as a good penalty. But the goal is to not put themselves in positions like that defensively where they have to take good penalties. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, again, the majority of the penalties that are called are not good penalties. Right, right, They're right. not penalties worth defending or calling out. They're usually penalties that I'll write in a recap and say, this was dumb. And everyone will just go, yes, that was dumb. And then we kind of forget about it because most penalties are of that nature mm-hmm. but but this leads me to my larger concern that's why i held my point up to end and this is going to for me put a bow on things yeah, sure. my biggest concern for the season is the coaching mm-hmm. in terms of relaying the message of better discipline and more importantly getting the right tactics for the players for the better part of the last four seasons it, it could be argued that the devils weren't the most talented team they didn't have the best players. They didn't have very good players. There was a lot of hoping. One season it worked out, and the other seasons they were terrible. Simple as. And yeah, we can blame injuries, and yeah, we can blame this and that, but for the most part, the team was not going to contend for a playoff spot for most of those seasons, and for most of them, they didn't. And more importantly than that, the team was constantly being beaten in the run of play. They were constantly below 50 in expected goals. They were there was just a lot of issues underneath, which all point to the fact that, all right, this team may not be good enough to contend. So, Dan, I think it's clear this team has a lot more talent now. I think there's a lot more players that can play. To use a college football term, they got the Jimmys and the Joes now. Now we need to see if the X's and the O's are good enough. Mm-hmm. And I'm concerned that because the team has been so poor in the run of play that 
I don't think it's just the players that's the problem. I'm not sure if Hines and Elaine Nazardine and the other members of the coaching staff have the right tactics to put with these players. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that we have learned with all the analytics movements that have been ongoing in hockey and in other sports is that coaches have a really big impact on how the team performs. Yeah, there's the athletic article that just came out this week. Exactly. I mean, and that's a good article. I would definitely read that. That's by Allison Lucan, I believe. Yep. Yeah, okay, good. I remembered it correctly. And and it's more than that. I remember when Tim, shortly before Tim Barnes, the infamous Vic Ferrari that kick-started a lot of this stuff over a decade ago, um, he joined the Washington Capitals. Somebody asked him, what's the biggest thing you've learned from all your analytics work? And he said, coaching. Coaching matters. It matters a lot. And it's not just in terms of who plays with who. It's also what do you tell them to do out there? A perfect case in point is Miles Wood. John Hines and his staff still believes he should be playing dump and chase hockey, even though it is statistically proven that that is not an efficient way to play. And in the case of Miles Wood, he's often left on an island. So it's almost like you told Miles Wood to skate ahead, take a hit or two, run into the boards, and all to potentially win the puck that he most likely does not win. And when he does win it, he doesn't have anybody to pass it to because he's so far ahead of everyone else. Is that a good play to you? It's not a good play to me, and it doesn't do any it doesn't do any value for Wood, and it doesn't give any value to the team. So why does the coaches keep doing this? Mm-hmm. And I'm picking on that as an example of why I'm concerned about the coaching. And that's why I'm a big believer that if this team falls flat on their face out of the gate, if they're going to Thanksgiving in eight, seventh or eighth place and they're way behind. Do not be shocked if there's a coaching change because, quite frankly, the mindset for this season has been playoffs, playoffs, playoffs. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a question whether or not they can make it. We, you know, other people are predicting it's a bubble team. I don't think that's an unfair prediction. I think that's a valid prediction. I agree with much of that for a whole bunch of different reasons that you and I discussed earlier. But the fact of the matter is is that if this team doesn't make it, it's not. it may not just because – it may not be just because the goaltending wasn't good enough or guys got hurt or whatever. It could be just as simply the coaching let them down, and, and that's why I'm concerned. Again, if coaching wasn't a big deal, then everyone's projections for the Florida Panthers just adding Bobrovsky and, I guess, Anton Strawman would not be as high as it is. If Quenville wasn't who he is, not as many people would be as high on the Florida Panthers because he has delivered consistent results. Anywhere he's gone, he's been pretty dang good. So getting him was a big deal for the Panthers, and people acknowledge that him being there is just as big of a factor as Bobrovsky was signing there. It's just as big as any of the other offseason moves they made because, like you said, it matters. It's so important, and... You know, people are giving Buffalo a little bit more credence now because Kruger's coming in and they saw what he could do on the world stage. There's there's people that will change their opinions of a team definitely based on who's coaching them for reasons, not just tactics, but how is he as a motivator? How is he how is his record of success and how does he interact with the team? Is he a player's coach? Is he a coach's coach? What can he do? And if this stuff wasn't important, people wouldn't talk about it. It would just be, this guy has to direct these dudes how to play the game. Okay, great. Anyone can stand there and do that, but that's not the case. It's Correct. so important, and you're right. That is something that definitely worries me, just given the trends that the Devils have been following the last couple of years. But again, they're coming into this year with more talent than Hines has ever had on a roster. Yeah, so and that's why I said earlier, the Devils have the Jimmies and the Joes, so to speak. So we got to know, 
are the X's and the O's going to be good enough to make them as successful as they possibly can be? Because I'm concerned that they may not be. I would love to be proven wrong. I'd love to see if Hines and his staff are able to make adjustments in game. The the concerning part is those last two preseason games because the Devils did not play well in those games. They came out really badly in the Boston game. Bruce Cassidy seemed to, you know, drink John Hines's proverbial milkshake for the better part of 60 minutes in that game. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like it was that far. It wasn't like a blowout game. I mean, Blackwood played well. I mean, a goal against came off of some dude's face. It wasn't exactly, right. you know, uh, a, a beatdown. It was a 2 nothing loss. But the Devils just showed very little going forward against a team that they're going to have to try and get some points against, given that they're in the conference, uh, the Eastern Conference. Likewise with Columbus. Now the Devils won that game, but there were some stretches where Columbus just kept picking on the Devils and the Devils had like no response from anybody. Those are the sorts of things that I get concerned about mm-hmm. with respect to the coaching. So, but that's something that we're going to see. I'm hopeful that with better players that will help alleviate a lot of this, but we got to see if the coaching can put it all together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a good way to put a bow on it. That's pretty much covering everyone. Just one last thing I wanted to mention. We had a question after the last podcast and, Sure. Just to summarize, it's from uh, Eliash Still Rock, so thanks again for uh, writing in. We really appreciate it. He asked if we would prefer to start Nico or Hughes as the 1C when the season starts. And mm. and this is based on the perception that Hughes has more offensive talent, which he probably will eventually, but he doesn't right now. He sure has been in this league. He's someone who's played comfortably with Hall, and there's no way Hall is playing on a second line. So it's going to be he sure. <laughs> Come on. I could actually I could see Hall be on the second line just for matchup purposes. Uh, now to start the season though, it's gonna be Teacher Hall. Well yeah, I agree. That that's uh, the, the question. Win- it's more Yeah, the home the home game in Winnipeg it'll be Heesher Hall and a right winger to be named later. Yeah. Um probably Paul Mary. But the next game in Buffalo, that's a road game. Mm-hmm. And you're playing a team that's fresh. So if the matchups work out that they're targeting Heesher uh, if Buffalo is targeting Heesher, maybe you make a switch to put Hall with Hughes, and then you make Buffalo make a really tough choice to do I stack myself up against Hall and Hughes, or do I stack myself up against, excuse me, Gusev and Heesher, and basically make them pick their poison, which is, again, another reason why I'm so happy with the forward depth on this team, because, again, they have options to do fun matchup things like that where in the past it was they they couldn't it was either you power match against Heisher's line and that's it <laughs> job done but I I will agree Heisher should be the top center for now just because he has proven it over the last two seasons he's been excellent defensively which is another factor Hughes is still a question mark in that regard and he'll get better at that in time too but I would set it up that Heisher and Hall start out on the top line Gusev and Hughes on the second line. Coleman and Zajac on the third line, and then Zaka and Wood on the fourth line. And I know I just didn't mention any right wingers, but I don't care. Mm-hmm. Well, well, yeah. I mean, all that being said, like, this is a situation where if it did mix up, like you know, just from a familiarity aspect, I Heisher Hall is something that I anticipate seeing most of the year because you know Hall's talked specifically about playing with Nico Heischer before but again even if that pairing does change it wouldn't be like Heischer would get a demotion to line two it would be more like a one and one a kind of situation these these top six that they have now we were talking about the forward uh, depth and flexibility 
it allows them the opportunity to put together a strength line if they want to, but also distribute their talents where you're essentially making two first lines. Pretty much. And again, that's the that's the benefit of having all these additional players to do so. Look at Pittsburgh for many years. You know, Crosby and Malkin would sometimes play together and sometimes they wouldn't. And nobody stood up and said, well, Malkin's being disrespected because he's not the first center or Crosby's not really the first center because he's playing with Chris Kunitz and, you know, this other Jamoke that we don't know. Um, no, it, they just found success. And as long as it finds success, everybody's going to be happy. No one's going to stand up and say, well, Hughes played two more minutes than I am. And I'm, I'm unhappy about that, despite the fact that we won 4-1. Like, it's just going to be, we won 4-1. Woo! Let's keep it going. Yeah. Simple as. No, yeah. It, it Again, this is like, it's not going to be considered a demotion if the second line is like, what, Gusev, Heischer, Brat? Like, that's a pretty good line anyway. Yeah. That's something that I would gladly take. I mean, I can definitely see a situation where it's like North America line and Euro line. You got Hall, Hughes, Palmieri, and then you got Gusev, Heischer, Brad, or Boquist. Like, it's, it's all possible. It's all something that we've seen combinations of in the preseason. And in terms of the top six, those were the guys that were consistently bringing it every single game. All right, so yeah, again, thanks for the question, Eliash Slow Rocks. Really appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of our season preview here. We're all very excited for Friday. And again, thank you for listening. I'll be sure to include links to uh, all the articles that we talked about in here today. And also, um, you know, we'll have some additional information resources for you as you get ready for the new season. But with that, sleep soundly tonight knowing hockey is... Uh, when this episode airs and the devils will be back very, very soon. And I couldn't be more excited for it. Yep. It's going to be great. All right. With all that being said, have a great rest of your day or night and we'll catch up with you when the regular season starts.